Welcome to DLA Piper's At the Intersection of Science and Law podcast. In this episode, DLA Piper's Chris Campbell and Jody Rhodes are joined by Sarah Heineman, Senior Assistant General Counsel at Bayer, to discuss how social media affects the public's view of medicine and science and how that in turn impacts the life sciences industry, including litigation. Hello and welcome to At the Intersection of Science and Law. With us today is Sarah Heineman, who is Senior Assistant General Counsel at Bayer. Hello. Jody Rhodes, who is an associate in our litigation group at DLA Piper's office in Atlanta. Hi, Chris. Hi, Sarah. And my name is Chris Campbell. I am chair of DLA Piper's product liability and mass torts group and also head of the litigation team in the Atlanta office. Our topic today is how social media affects the public's view of medicine and science and how that in turn impacts the life sciences industry, including litigation involving the life sciences industry. But before we get into the substance of our topic, I thought we could do a quick icebreaker question with you, Sarah, and you, Jody. What was your first foray into social media since social media is the focus of our discussion today? Sarah, you want to go first? My first interaction And social media could mean a lot of things, but I'm thinking probably MySpace. I had a MySpace page. I think I may even had a picture up on it and then some likes and dislikes. (laughs) Was it elaborately decorated with all sorts of colors? That's how I remember MySpace. It's very elaborate. I actually think even around MySpace, the first social media could have been at that time the dating apps, dating websites. We're getting in personal territory here with you, but (laughs) (laughs) you were on multiple dating apps. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I was. I was. I was the original swipe right. (laughs) How about you, Jody? Well, I have to agree with Sarah. I think my first social media foray was MySpace, but I am old enough to have received those AOL dial-in discs in the mail. I'm not sure I ever joined any of the predecessors to social media, the chat rooms and those things. And we did learn before this call that Sarah still has a Hotmail email address. So (laughs) it's just a mark of coolness, I think. So my first experience with social media is very boring, I'm afraid. It's probably LinkedIn. And then also very recently, within a year probably, I got on Instagram to just follow the news and celebrity gossip and that sort of thing. But I'm not even on Facebook, so I'm way behind. Should we jump into our questions? Let's do it. How has social media impacted how patients and other consumers understand and use information related to healthcare and medicine? Sarah, you want to kick us off to that? I think the days are gone where people sit and watch the six o'clock news and find information out in that way or read the newspaper. Now all of the media outlets have their own social media tools that they utilize. So it's very important in terms of the audience it addresses and who receives their information from social media, the problem that arises is that it's such a truncated form of communication that you're limited in terms of even character size or in terms of news outlets, how they want to grab people's attentions with the headlines, that's even shorter than what you might see in a newspaper article. So smaller amounts of information are being received by, I think, a larger volume of people. And that creates confusion and you're just missing information on 
health topics. And it's also concerning in terms of what value people are putting on lay people (laughs) to provide that information to them as well. So if you receive a tweet from your aunt and she's saying, oh, I read this article about the side effects of this new drug, then that may be the only time that person receives that information and somewhat takes it at face value. A lot of credit is given to people, I feel, on social media right? in terms of their qualifications to be speaking on topics. I call it the Yelp effect. Yelp works very well for restaurants and other types of products, but maybe it doesn't work so well for prescription medicines, for example, where you expect some percentage of the population who takes a medicine to have a side effect, and maybe it's a bad side effect. But if it's only those people who are speaking out on social media or being very vocal about their bad side effect and everybody else who had a great experience is silent, then it amplifies that point of view, and it really doesn't give consumers a complete picture of how the medication is working or could give a skewed view. Would you agree with that? Yeah, exactly. And it's also the difference in terms of why the Yelp model doesn't work. When you're talking about medicine and medical devices, everyone's body is different. Everyone reacts to things differently. So even if there is anecdotal evidence of this worked well, or I experienced all these horrible things. It's the worst thing that ever happened to me. There is no connection on whether or not those same things will happen to you. And that's where it's different than if someone says, I went to a restaurant and had a really great meal and you have similar tastes in terms of what type of food you like, then you can actually use that anecdotal evidence to help make an informed decision. But it's even less helpful, I think, in the health and welfare of your body (laughs) as context. And Jody, what would you add to that question? Well, I think a truncated form of information was a great point, Sarah. And even more concerning over the past year, we've seen so much misinformation being shared over social media, whether it's malicious or not. So it definitely adds another element when you have so many people relying on social media for their medical information that not only are they getting a truncated message or a select messaging from self-selected people, but they're also getting misinformation in so many different ways. And I think it cuts out a key player in the discussion, which should be their doctor's (laughs) Or the healthcare professional that they're talking to. You know, when you go to a restaurant and have a bad meal, there's usually nobody who's a restaurant expert that you should be consulting with and factoring into the discussion. But with a doctor, I think it's different. And I think social media sometimes overrides people's view of their doctor or the advice their doctor is even giving them. They weigh their aunt or they weigh somebody from totally a different state who doesn't know them way more than how they consider their doctor's opinion. Which may be a factor of availability. It's difficult to get in to see a doctor about headaches. It's very easy to get on social media, search for the name of a drug you're using and reviewing to see if other people are having headaches, let's say. I will say before you somewhat get into your next question, Chris, is the one good thing that I think comes out of it in terms of your healthcare is, yes, it might be misinformation to a certain degree. But it might just be information you're getting. And I am guilty of this. If I start having headaches and I have nausea and I don't have a fever, but I'm experiencing these things 
after starting a medication. I'll do some research. And that's actually a good thing, having more informed patients. But the key is then go to your doctor with those questions, with those, hey, I was looking this up. Is this anything to do with that? And I think it will force your doctor to also say, oh, okay, let me think about that. And then you can get a medical professional opinion. I think it's important for patients to be more informed, but it's what they do with that information. And when they start making those health decisions on their own without the input of their doctor and not just any doctor, that's where the problems can occur. So I just didn't want to badmouth social media. I think it is excellent way to find out information. And I think it's always important for patients to be educated when they have discussions with their doctors. So I think that is a benefit. But the concern is what do people do with that information when they find it out? Right. And what decisions are they making and with who else are they discussing? And how do you think that patients try to discern what's true and what's not true if they see conflicting views out there or conflicting reports about an issue relating to medicine? The problem that I think has occurred because so many news outlets and individuals are using social media also to communicate and that people trust those individuals or institutions for other things where medicine and science is not the background, they tend to give more credit to those institutions. For example, if someone follows CNN News and CNN says something about a medication, they will give that weight because they rely on CNN news to give them the news. But that can be the problem of where are you getting it from? Mm -hmm. You may still rely more on the institution or even a person that you trust more than WebMD or a hospital or the CDC website. And that can be problematic because it's not just that conflicting information, it's who is conflicting. And I think there's an element of confirmation bias because I think all of us have scrolled through results of a Google search when you're typing in symptoms or something. And if you want it to be something or you have a fear that it's something, you'll scroll through and maybe see different descriptions. And you're like, oh, well, I don't like that one because it contradicts what I want the answer to be. And you just go right past it and click on the one that seems more like what you want or more like what you already think the answer is. There's an element of that, I think, in some of the searches that people do. I was going to say, who's cheering for a result for symptoms in a Google search? I, I actually think <laughs> that's it just came off a little. Maybe nobody's cheering for symptoms. I think people have a preconception and often your confirmation bias is hunting for things that support your preconceived idea, whatever that may be. We touched on a little bit already, but how do you think social media is impacting the way people view the opinions and the advice of their healthcare providers or just other experts in general? medical experts in particular. Do you think people are discounting their doctors more than they were before social media, for example? I think it depends on when it's being raised with the doctor. Because we have seen, too, on social media that something occurs and then maybe the medicine is then stopped or the device is no longer used and what occurs is the individual may historically look back and say, oh, my doctor 
said it was something else, but reading all these other individuals' own accounts of their experiences makes me think actually my doctor was wrong. But there are individuals who go to their doctor with, hey, I've read online, other people who are taking this drug are also experiencing these same things. Could it be related? And if a patient is going to their doctor with that mindset, they may rely on their advice a bit more. But when it's historical or they keep going back to the doctor and the doctor says it's this, this, and this, and it's still not resolved, I think that's when they start losing faith in what their doctor's saying and confidence in their doctors. Because they may think, well, these 100,000 people are experiencing the same thing I'm experiencing, taking the same drug I'm taking, and my doctor hasn't said this is what it is. So you start to wonder, because people, I think, sometimes translate a Facebook group into almost a clinical trial, right? right? I think that's right. (laughs) That they're saying, oh, you have this amount of people who all have taken this same drug, and they are experiencing these symptoms. And they come to the superficial belief that it's like our own clinical trial. So they think, here, we have data. So I think all of those things make them mistrust their doctor then. I think it does create some skepticism with the medical advice from medical professionals. One, I think it creates an effect where there's a mismatch between correlation and causation about certain symptoms. And two, I think it feeds into a common narrative that we see, which is my doctor's not listening to me. And I think maybe the social media group is listening and they are supporting me as I'm working through these issues that I'm associated with a particular drug, but my doctor is not listening to me. And it's probably true that nowadays, in terms of people's lives compared to, let's say, 50 years ago, your doctor was much more of a personal relationship. You had a consistent relationship with your doctor and the weight that you would give your doctor, the amount of time you spent with that person was much higher than it is now, whereas social media is coming up. The doctor relationship is going down at the same time, and that's probably impacting how people view that, don't you think? Yeah, because most people don't have a primary healthcare physician to go to. You're going to see different doctors for different things, or you're going to say, I have chest palpitations or something that they can address, but then your own doctor doesn't know about that aspect. So they are going in and having limited information too. So let me try a different idea on the same theme, but my theory is that we're in this age of personal empowerment. And just ATMs are an example of that. People can now do almost all their banking through an ATM. They can do it online. They don't have to go see a banker anymore. All these things that you could now do yourself, you don't need as much help as you used to for almost anything. And I think medicine becomes a similar type issue where people think, I don't need the doctor anymore. I can look up my own symptoms. I obviously need a doctor to get a prescription, but short of that, I can handle this myself. And that personal empowerment, I think, weakens many, many people's views of the medical profession and the value that that profession adds and the expertise that they add. People just start to think, I can do all this on my own. What do you guys think? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree. That's a really good point. And it coincides with, like you said, people just putting in the symptoms and coming up with it. But it also coincides with a trend of anti-medicine, anti-pharmaceutical products to fix 
again, air quotes, your problems, that looking to more holistic type remedies. So you have these groups that are also somewhat feeding into it. A perfect example is the anti-vaxxers movement, not just now currently, but previously. And you had this group also shedding light into this skepticism of your doctor and the health industry and pharmaceutical industry and life sciences. So I think it's somewhat of a perfect storm in a way too. The social media permits you to do more on your own. And it's more so, I think, finding out information more on your own. Because you go to a doctor previously, if you had symptoms, you had no idea what it possibly could be. And even with Wikipedia, I mean, how many times do we just put something in the internet to find out information? So when you think you know everything, then you're less likely to rely on others. And people do like that ability to say, I can do this all on my own, or I can be the one to help my kids figure this out, not their doctor necessarily. So I'm going to skip ahead a little bit on our questions because I think this helps cross over into one of the legal issues because we haven't talked too much law at this point. But one of the issues is how people view expert witnesses in a jury trial, for example. And expert witnesses play a huge role in jury trials involving life sciences company products. Do you think jurors pay less attention to expert witnesses now because of the issue we've been talking about, that they feel more like they can figure it out on their own, they don't need an expert from the plaintiff or the defense, or they just don't care as much about what an expert from the plaintiff or defense are saying? I think it depends. I think if you have an expert who has these qualifications and comes off as completely unbiased either way, whether that's true or not, but if they can make that presentation being unbiased and considered top in their field, I think they are afforded the credibility from the jury that we've seen a long time ago. I'm going to use like an OBGYN. I don't think they're given as much weight as they would have been in the past because people feel that, well, I know all of those things that the doctor's talking about because of my own experiences and what I've read from other people or on the internet or what have you as a juror. So I think because they feel they're as informed, they don't need to really listen to them. And I think we're seeing more and more jurors say, yes, they gave me those calculations, but I did my own calculations. So we're seeing that more, again, with that whole self-empowered, I can take a master class on medicine <laughs> and I can be an expert just You're like you. are equal to the doctor at that point. Right. So it's this mentality, like you said, of self-empowerment. And I don't think experts are given as much weight for being an expert, but they could be given more weight for being a good witness, mm -hmm. which is a difference. And Jody, what do you think? I think that's a great point to pick up on what Sarah said. I think an unbiased expert is the most critical thing you could bring to a jury because I do think that they're looking for the expert opinion that feeds into their own bias by that point. So going back to what Chris mentioned earlier about a confirmation bias, if you have an expert for the plaintiff and an expert for the defendant, assuming that they're both coming across as unbiased, I think they're going to go with their bias at that point in the trial. 
That's a good point, Jody. I don't think you can win trials any longer with your experts unless they're the number one, number two person in their field or there is some extra qualification beyond just qualifying as an expert that makes people say, oh, they know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can win any longer with your expert witnesses in a trial. And hopefully if there's no causative link in whatever you're trying, the judge is taking care of that through earlier motion practice. <laughs> or if your expert witness says, no, there's no causation. What actually caused this was this injury she had, or she had these other factors that create this, not taking this medication. And if that can be shown through medical records, I think medical records are still valuable and having a mouthpiece for the medical records and explaining what that means. I think a treating physician mm -hmm. is a more valuable witness in terms of winning or losing a trial than necessarily the expert. So if you have an expert supporting a treating physician who has opined on causation, I think that is how you can best utilize your expert witnesses in that this isn't a lone wolf treating physician, that someone else, an expert in that field also agrees with them. But if your expert disagrees with the treating physician, you have to have some other reason to win that trial. Right. <laughs> I think of it a little bit like swimming with the current. You want your expert to be swimming with the current, the jurors are already thinking, or whatever lines they're already thinking along, and the treating doctors go along with that as well, and the overall theme. But you're ideally picking a position as a defense, that's usually with the side we're on, that is consistent with the jurors, almost their common sense impression or their first take impression of the issue. And everybody is all consistent along those lines, including your expert. But if you have an expert who's somehow going to explain to jurors why their common sense is wrong, I think it's harder to do that these days mm -hmm. than it maybe was 50 years ago. Yeah, great point. I do think about that old movie, 12 Angry Men. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but Henry Fonda is the one holdout juror amongst 12 jurors. And he egregiously breaches the rules of a juror. He goes out and does his own investigation. He brings in a mock murder weapon. He does everything that a juror shouldn't do. So I think jurors have probably been disregarding experts and witnesses and court rules for a very long time. And it does feel like it might be happening a little bit more now, but I don't think it's unique solely to this era of social media. Yeah. Like I said, we are hearing more and more from jurors and in mock juries that they're doing their own calculations, they're doing their own analysis, and they are relying on that. And depending how strong of a juror they are, they will use that to convince others. How do you counteract that, Sarah? What's your thought about that? There are some jurors who already have their minds made up. And the first key is you get rid of those. <laughs> But if you can find more defense-minded jurors who are strong, you can arm them with data and information and have your experts provide them with simple calculations or a simple analysis or something that, like you said, feeds into the common sense of, well, how can this person have this adverse event occur if they haven't taken the drug for a year? Mm-hmm. What are other ways, Sarah, in your mind that social media is impacting litigation these days, particularly related to life sciences issues? 
there are several things that you have to think about. One is the individual litigation, and especially if it's a mass tour. And if part of that mass tour, you discover that there is a Facebook group or a huge community on Quorum or a thread someplace that the plaintiffs are continually going to, finding out that information in your litigation can be helpful, but it can also somewhat be harmful. So you have to evaluate the value of the information that you're going to be getting from your social media, from the social media of the plaintiffs, compared to the overall what I'll call risks and costs. The benefits are that particularly if it is a group or like a thread that is discussing that particular product or device and you have then a documented date stamp of when things were said. My doctor told me this today. This is when I first experienced this injury. This is when I retained a lawyer. (laughs) Those kind of date stamp documentation you would never get in a deposition or a PFS. So having that really helps with statutes, limitation arguments, also causation arguments, also damages arguments, because you may see on those social media sites, people saying, I stopped taking it and everything resolved. So then this ongoing injury and damages amount is cut off then. So there's valuable information there. Also, you can maybe find some conflict between those groups and the plaintiff's own social media site. So they may be complaining how horrible their life is because of this drug or device. Then during that same time frame, you see this amazing vacation that they had. They posted all these pictures on their own Facebook page. So again, there can be a lot of valuable information that can help overall with the litigation. The risks and costs are, one, it is costly to mine that information, collecting it and everything. I will say this, it's costly for review, but another benefit is it's also costly for the plaintiffs to collect that information, redact information where appropriate, having to review it themselves before they produce it, So that can be a benefit in terms of another way to leverage plaintiff's lawyers in this litigation. It levels the plague field, whereas mostly it's defense who are producing electronically stored information. It's an instance, at least in some cases, where plaintiffs have to produce electronically stored information. Correct. But the risks that you have to think about as a company is that your lawyers are receiving all of that information and they are a vendor of the life science company, and it may give rise to reporting obligations. And you might have to then have this huge influx of duplicate and triplicate and quadruplicate of information that you're submitting to the FDA, which could already with litigation, there's a false increase of adverse event reports that are going to be on FDA's website. And There are already limitations to adverse event reporting that aren't necessarily clear to a layperson. All they see is the total number. So then you are adding all this additional reporting and increasing the total amount of adverse event reports on 
the FDA's database, then you have links that people could link to and review it on the FDA. And then it might get more attention of there was a five-time increase of adverse event reports for this drug. It might be picked up then by media, which then gives it more attention or advertising. Lawyers may think that's the hook to start advertising for lawsuits. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy almost. Correct. Exactly, Chris. That's very well put. And there's also then the internal cost to the company because they have to process all of those individual comments or replies on a thread that is costly for a life science company to do to even determine is it reportable. And that cost to the company, looking at it holistically, from a litigation standpoint, are the potential dismissals you could get from statute of limitations and what have you, is that less costly than having the cost the company has to do to process this and people that they have to retain to process it? So sometimes it's not worth it. Yeah, you may get five to 10 dismissals on statute of limitations, but if you are in a mass tort, I don't think there's anything in social media as a whole, collectively, that could move the needle in terms of dispositively deciding the litigation. Now, you may find something for a bellwether plaintiff that helps you win the litigation, that goes to trial in somewhat, like I said, affecting the plaintiff's credibility, affecting even causation, because if they also start talking about other things that they may not have identified again on their PFS or in their deposition. So it could help substantively individually with a trial. But overall, going through all that information, it may be too costly for the company. Again, looking at it holistically for the company, overall amounts that they have to spend in the litigation and with reporting all of these adverse events, it just may not be worth it unless you can get rid of such a large amount that it reduces the cost of the litigation significantly. And I don't see that in the group of social media if you're looking at that type of information to affect a litigation positively in that way to reduce the cost. So it may be then what you do is you look at it from it's valuable to have the option to look at maybe, let's just look at what our bellwether plaintiffs posted and look up that way, which yes, you may have others in a reply that you then have to report, but it's not, we're just doing this whole mass set of every single post ever in a group. And I think one thing just to clarify, so nobody's confused about this, how you're talking about getting the social media information. You're talking about getting it through the discovery process in the case. You're not saying having somebody sneak around and look at people's private Facebook pages at all, right? Right. Yes. It's through the discovery process in terms of requesting it for production. So maybe we'll just wrap up with a final thought if you have any thoughts about where do you see this going Predict five years in the future with social media and its impact on the law and these sorts of issues. What do you see changing in that regard or just more of the same? I think it's just going to increase in how we receive information in this manner. I think more and more and more people are going to social media to find out information. And whether 
to find out information is for the self-empowerment, like you said, or in terms of them wanting to help others in their own group or similarly situated. I think we're just going to see an increase in that, which is somewhat unfortunate to a certain extent because companies are limited to what they can do on social media because of regulations. So they can't provide all of the information in a tweet that could help provide the information that this individual patient is looking for because the regulations require it's so broad of what could be considered promotion. So therefore everything has to have important safety information. And it's discerning to me because how are patients supposed to get that information? How can the industry provide information to patients and comply with regulations in a manner that the patients would actually utilize it and rely on it. Because, Mm -hmm. yes, we can send a tweet with a link to the important safety information that has then a link to this or a link to that, but that's different than someone being able to digest a tweet that says, I use this product, I had this injury, it's horrible. I've stopped taking it. I'm better now. That's just one tweet they have to look at. And it could be from a source that they rely on. So then they look at that, rely on it. So it's just the industry, in my mind, what we need to do. And I know this wasn't exactly your question, but what I see for the future is how do we provide all of this important information in the same digestible manner that patients receive other information based on our products? I think that's a great point, Sarah. I mean, I think looking currently, social media is a lopsided tool for sharing information and evening that playing field for life science industry, I think is an important step. Very well said. So I think we can end on that. Thank you for including me in this. Thank you for participating. It's very enjoyable. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Jody. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to DLA Pipers at the Intersection of Science and Law podcast. All information, content, and materials contained in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. This podcast is intended to be a general overview of the subjects discussed and does not create a lawyer-client relationship. Statements and opinions are those of the individual speakers and participants and do not necessarily reflect the policies or opinions of DLA Piper, LLP, US, or Bayer. The information contained in this podcast is not and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. This podcast may qualify as lawyer advertising, requiring notice in some jurisdictions. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. DLA Piper LLP US accepts no responsibility for any actions taken or not taken as a result of this podcast.